Please remain standing and hear God's word with me from Isaiah chapter 58 at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. If you are new here, it is really, really good to see you. I missed you all last weekend. Uh, My wife and I were uh, traveling last Sunday and the week leading up to it, we were actually in El Salvador, right on cue. Uh, We were helping with uh, an organization called Surge, which is a global missions organization that we support. Each of the missionaries that we uh, support around the world, they are uh, working with this great organization. And one of the things I love about Surge is that they bring their missionaries together every two or three years just for a retreat. So they flew all of their missionaries from Central and South America into El Salvador, and then they asked uh, a number of people to come in and and teach and lead sessions and lead worship and things like that. Uh, And so I got to spend the week uh, teaching on the the fatherly love of God and on prayer and the Holy Spirit, you know, basically just the Trinity stuff, Uh, the the only talks that I've got. I just took those down there with me. But it was because of of you all and because of your generosity that we were able to do this. Uh, The church supported us to go down and and serve the organization in this way so that the missionaries weren't raising support for our travel fees and things like that. So we want to say thank you for your generosity and your faithful giving to make uh, that trip happen in order to, to encourage and bless missionaries as well as encourage and bless us. Related, uh, while we were down there, we received, uh, and maybe some of you did as well, a, a sort of SOS email from our missionaries in the Middle East, Michael and Julie, right on cue. And they were trying to get back from the States to their field. You might remember they were here in late July and shared with us about their mission, and they were here for a, a Sunday night prayer. Um, they were, were short several thousands of dollars just to get back to the field. And so again, because of your generosity, a few text messages went around and we were able to send them uh, $3,000 the same day. Uh, so again, thank you. You can clap for that. 
It's, it's because of your generosity that we've been able to set funds aside for certain needs and opportunities like this. And so we are, we are immensely thankful to be in the midst of such a generous uh, and a God-loving, mission-loving group of people. And so small plug is my duty as a pastor. If you are not giving and you want to start giving, you can find out more on the back of your bulletin. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to pass the plates today. But thank you. We love you. And it's really, really good to be back. We've been working through the book of Isaiah this entire fall. And in this last third of the book of Isaiah, we've seen the theme shift to renewal and revival. The God, the, the work of God in, in our hearts and in our souls and our lives to draw us back to himself when we have gone astray. That is what God is calling Israel to do, to come back to him, to set aside their, their you know, self-centered ways and, and to be restored in their lives to the God of Israel and to our God. And so that's been the theme over several chapters. But what we see in this chapter is, is God's heart for renewal and God's heart for the poor and needy. And we actually see this, this connection between our spiritual renewal and the social renewal of our world. That when we are renewed internally by the work of God through the Holy Spirit, it actually moves us in love to, to care for the poor and needy and marginalized and oppressed. And so spiritual renewal and social renewal go hand in hand throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, we see a, a beautiful, cohesive vision for social engagement and renewal in the scriptures. Even more than that, we discover that we have a, a power, a motivation, this, this inner presence of God to actually sustain us in the work of mercy and justice in the world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in Isaiah chapter 58. It's a huge topic. It is an incredibly complex uh, topic, and it's incredibly personal as well. So we're not going to cover everything in 30 minutes, but what we're going to do is this, three things. We're going to look at God's heart, God's heart for the poor and needy. Second, we're going to see how Jesus actually fulfills the call of Isaiah 58. And then third, we're going to look at how our spiritual renewal is meant to lead us to love and concern for the poor and needy. Our spiritual renewal happens for the sake of others' renewal as well. So let me pray for us and we'll get right into the passage today. I'm Father, Father of mercy, God of justice, you who, who care so much about these things, who are, you who are so drawn to the poor and needy over and over in the scriptures, it's who you are. You have called us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, would you work in our hearts today? Would you make us more like you? Would you give us your own heart? Lord Jesus, would you show us through your own ministry, your teaching, your miracles, your healings, those you chose to follow you, would you show us your heart for the poor and needy? Would you show us that we ourselves are the poor and needy? And Lord, I, I feel a, a measure of weakness this morning and uh, just fatigue from travel and uh, a bit of, of just general weariness and weakness and um, and, and yet know that it's, it's your word that is, is going forth this morning. You say in Isaiah 55 that your word goes forth and it, 
It doesn't fail to bear fruit. And so that's what we ask for this morning. Would you, would you speak your comfort and your peace and your healing through these words, God? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so Isaiah 58 is one of the classic texts where we can see God's heart for the poor and needy. And we've been going through Isaiah, and so you know the context, but I'll just remind you that this is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Israel is living in the land. They are in the promised land, and yet they are not free. They are actually enslaved in their own place. They are under foreign rule, and they are being oppressed, and they're crying out to God about their oppression. And yet what we see in these first three or four verses is that they're, they're also oppressing one another. So the very thing that they're crying out to God to be released from, they're actually doing in their own midst. They're actually oppressing the the poor and needy and marginalized in their own community. And so God has been revealing his heart to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And in the first three verses, God's essentially saying, you are seeking me, you say you're seeking me, but you've actually forsaken me. And, and Israel responds, but we're, we're still going to the synagogue. We're still doing this stuff. We've even been fasting. And then God responds in verse 5, Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? See, God is not impressed with their religious activity, all that they're doing. They're they're going to the temple, their observance of the Sabbath, even their their fasting, because they're they're doing it for themselves. They're doing it in a way that their hearts are still far from God, and, and they're doing it because they simply want to get things from God. They're being good, religious, spiritual people so that they can get blessings from God to keep going about life in their own way. We often call this performative spirituality, performance-based religion. It's, it's, a, it's a way of doing religion and spirituality to impress God and to be seen by others. It is, it is not genuine, true, from-the-heart spirituality. It's having the appearance of holiness but lacking its substance. And this is how we know that they lack the heart of God. It's because they lack his heart for the poor and needy. Verses 6 and 7, God says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Whenever the Bible is, is talking about the poor, it's, it's primarily talking about the materially poor, not merely the, the poor in spirit. But at the same time, we, say, we see the same heart of God for anyone who is weak and hurting, anyone who is oppressed or marginalized or overlooked or mistreated, anyone who's sick or blind or deaf or paralyzed or just injured because they didn't stretch enough on Thursday night. Anyone at all that is, that is close to the end of their line and the end of their rope, anybody who is deeply aware of their need, 
who feels like they have no power, have no strength of their own. God draws near to, to them. God is, God is drawn to our need. I think he's drawn to our need even more than he's drawn to our faith or our, our ministry or our, our goodness, our, our obedience. He is drawn to those who have great need, drawn to those who are aware of their great need. And this is because this is what is true of God. These are attributes of God, that he is merciful and that he is just. The scriptures say this, that he is the God of mercy and he is the God of justice. And these are two categories we actually see in Isaiah 58. The first one is mercy. And Isaiah gives us three examples of what mercy is. To share food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and to clothe the naked, to, to provide essential resources to those in need, to relieve the, the immediate suffering of those in our midst. Mercy is about directly providing for the needs of the poor and hurting. In our own community, this could look like providing financial help to another member. It could be opening your home to a friend who's lost their job. It could be buying a homeless person a meal, paying for medical bills, and so on. This is the heart of God to relieve the suffering of everyone who's living in a broken world. The second category is justice. Justice is actually going one step further than mercy. It's not just helping and, and drawing near to those in poverty, but it's helping people out of poverty. Verse 6 says that we are to loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every chain. This is what we often call restorative justice, justice that restores the lives of, of marginalized people. It's not merely meeting the direct needs, but changing the conditions in which people live, uprooting the injustices and broken systems that keep the oppressed oppressed, that keep the sick sick. And so Isaiah 58 shows us both things, God's heart for mercy and God's heart for justice. One of the things I, I see in myself, and I, and I see it uh, all across Christianity, even in, in good, well-meaning believers, that we often see God's heart for, for the poor and needy and see his heart for mercy and justice. And we immediately feel that, that call and we, we try to, to build our energy up and, and we go and do likewise. We are going to go and extend the mercy and justice of God. And that's a great, great impulse, but it's actually not the right next step. We are actually not the ones who fulfill the call of Isaiah 58. We are not the ones who will meet the needs of the poor and needy. And so the second thing is how Jesus fulfills this call. Israel was supposed to be the, the son of God, the, the child, the offspring of God, to fulfill all of his promises, to, to, to fulfill his law, to obey it, to, to be a blessing to the nations. And yet they, they weren't. They could not keep the law. They could not uh, bear God's image in terms of their love for the poor and needy. And nobody could. We couldn't. Nobody could do all of that. And so God sends his own son. Jesus himself is drawn to great need. And so anytime you think about the, the poor and the needy in the scriptures, our first impulse should not be, how can we help those people? Like, how can we go out of our way to help those poor and, and hungry people? Our impulse should be to realize that we are the poor people. 
Like we are the hurting people. We are the ones who need mercy. We should not first try to be like Jesus in helping the poor, but to be the kind of people that Jesus helps. To not reach down to help the poor, but to be the kind of poor person that God reaches down to help through Jesus. In Luke 4, we see Jesus in Galilee worshiping in the temple. He's just begun his formal ministry. And he goes forward and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it and finds Isaiah 61. And he stands up and he reads the first few verses. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And Jesus said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, it's like the ultimate mic drop in that moment. It's in fact such an intense moment that they drive him out of the synagogue and try to throw him off of a cliff and he he scoots out somehow. He, He just slips right through their midst. Not long after, Jesus is doing ministry in Judea in Matthew 11 and the disciples of John the Baptist come to him. John is in prison and he sends his disciples with this question, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? John's in prison, he's suffering, he knows he's near death. He thinks Jesus is the one, he's got all the promises, but he needs to be sure before he dies. Are you the one or should we wait for someone else? Jesus responds like this. Go back and report to John what you have seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy have been cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus directly identifies himself with God's work to preach the good news to the poor, to announce freedom and favor for the hurting and marginalized and oppressed. Jesus perfectly embodies the heart of God in every way, including towards the poor and needy. That's why we so frequently use the phrase, the way of Jesus here. We want to practice the way of Jesus together. That means we want to draw near to him and be like him. The goal of our lives is to be conformed into the image of Christ, to live how he lived, to love what he loves. And yet again and again, I want to come back to the fact that our first impulse is not simply to be like Jesus, but to be the kind of person that Jesus helps. To be so needy and so aware of our need that Jesus is drawn to us in our condition. In other words, we have to remember the work of Jesus on our behalf in the good news of Christianity. The gospel tells us that we are hopelessly dead in our sins apart from Jesus. Like we have nothing to brag about, no, no right standing, nothing that we can hold over anyone else. But as 2 Corinthians put it, 2 Corinthians 8, our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. 
He's saying we are completely dead in our sins. We are completely impoverished in the realest sense, in the most spiritual sense. And it required Jesus' very life to become completely poor in order to transfer his riches, his, his eternal riches to us. That's the good news of Christianity, that we brought nothing to Jesus except our need and our lack. And he healed us. He, he lifted us up. He restored us. And the point is that we are all poor. We are all vulnerable. We are all hurting and broken in some way. And so we should have profound empathy and oneness with anyone who's poor and hurting. Tim Keller writes this in his article, The Gospel and the Poor. The gospel is the basis and mainspring for Christian practice, individually and corporately, within the church and outside of it. Believing the gospel will move us to serve and to give to the poor. And ministry to the poor is a crucial sign that we believe the gospel. We are under, undeserving of anything. We are the poor and needy. If our, if our love for the poor and needy is view, viewed as us reaching down to help people, to, to provide charity, and we will do far more damage than good to, to the ones that we serve and to ourselves. But if we see ourselves as needy, broken, desperate people, trying to help our needy, broken, desperate brothers and sisters in just a different type of need than we have, then we will get somewhere. Then we will be able to, to bear the heart of God and to, to live like Jesus lived. My wife, Jessie, once said this about working with refugees, that uh, the more that we are present to them, the, the closer the gap gets between them and us. You know, the first time you meet somebody who's from a different culture, who doesn't speak the same language as you, there's all these barriers, and you feel like the, the gap between you and them is just so significant. But it's with every hour that you spend with them, every meal that you share with them, that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you're finally just two people having tea together. That's how Jesus drew near to us, and it's how we are to draw near to one another. And the order of this process is, is critically important. We're not supposed to see ourselves as, as godlike figures or little uh, messiahs and saviors going around doing the work of Jesus. Instead, Jesus is doing the work himself, but he's doing it through us as broken and needy people. We are, we are just beggars, pointing other beggars to the bread of life. So that leads us to the third thing, how our spiritual renewal leads to social renewal, how our inner spiritual renewal is meant to lead us to love for the poor and hurting. Because we've said this, that spiritual renewal begins as we see God as he is, and then we see ourselves as we are. And if we see God as, as the God of mercy and the God of justice, and we see ourselves as those in desperate need of his mercy and justice, then we begin the process of renewal. God pours out his renewing love into our hearts. We begin to be renewed as we leave behind our old selfish ways to become more like Jesus, including his love for others. What does this look like in a hand-drawing uh, picture? I'll show you. Right on cue, spiritual renewal leads us to social renewal. 
And then social renewal leads us right back to more spiritual renewal. In particular, love moves us from personal renewal to others' renewal. This is, this is mercy, both personal and organizational. When love pours out of us to relieve the suffering of other people inside and outside of the church, this is essential to the work of Christianity. No organization or group or religion has done as much for the world in terms of caring for the poor and needy as Christianity. When we were in El Salvador, almost every single person that we met, each one of those missionaries that's serving all over Central and South America, Almost every single one of them was a doctor, nurse, uh, counselor, therapist, speech therapist. And they had chosen to, to use their profession and their education in a place where it was most needed. And people who had chosen to give their lives away and rather than, than take the large incomes that could come with these careers, they were actually raising support in order to go and establish hospitals and clinics and counseling practices in places where there was nothing before. The only possible motivation for that is love. When God pours his love into our hearts to the extent that it just flows out of us into the lives of other people, those in the church and those outside of the church, only love can sustain that kind of ministry. And the second thing is that mercy and justice, this social renewal, it actually leads us back to spiritual renewal. It actually leads us back because it forces us to be more dependent on the Holy Spirit, more dependent on the presence and power of God. And there's this beautiful promise that God makes in Isaiah 58. You see it in verses 8 through 10. He says, if you do all this, if you serve the poor and needy, if you give your life away, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. These are among the biggest, most significant, most all-encompassing promises of God anywhere in the Scripture. And they're for God's children who give their lives away for one another, especially the poor and needy and hurting. As you work for the good of others, it drives you back to the Father in prayer and renewal. We were having lunch with, with one couple in the afternoon. Each, each afternoon, we just sat with the missionaries, and we're getting to know them and hearing their stories. And this particular couple had decided to retire in their early 60s and move to, to inner city, Guatemala City. And, and the husband was a pediatrician, and he was setting up a clinic for homeless drug addicts. And they would spend their days just going out on the streets, sitting with people, trying to compel them to come into the clinic to receive help, to break free from addiction, and to hear about the God who loves them. And they had been down there for like less than a year. It was their first trip out of the city. And as you can imagine, they were just describing how incredibly hard it was, how complex it was, how hopeless it was, how discouraging it had been, and how much it had changed their prayer lives. So it just goes to show if you, if you want to increase your prayer life, if you want more 
power and dependency in your prayer life, all you need to do is move to Guatemala City and, and invest your lives in the streets and among the homeless and needy addicts. The more you pour out your life on behalf of other people, especially the neediest in our midst, the more you will realize how needy you are, how powerless you are apart from God's Spirit. You'll be driven over and over and over back to prayer. And so what does it look like for us? For us here at Trinity in this moment, in this community, what does it look like for us to, to move from spiritual renewal to the renewal of others? How do, we, how do we pour out our lives, as God says in Isaiah, for the good of others? Just a few particular things come to mind. First of all, if you're not involved somewhere, just start anywhere. I love the old uh, quote, a famous quote by General Patton. He says, a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. I just think for, for us, we can get so, I, I think rightly so, we can want to do things well, we can want to do things perfectly in a way that doesn't harm or, or hurt anyone, that we can actually become immobilized just waiting for the perfect opportunity, trying to put together the perfect plan trying to make sure that we've, we've done everything just right so that we will have the perfect ministry or organization or place to serve, just the right spot for us, that years and years can go by and we're still not actually doing anything. I believe in, in really carefully planned works of mercy and justice, but the most important thing is identifying with those who have different needs than you and loving them, and pouring out your life for them. If you're not involved somewhere, just get started anywhere. You can talk to your community group leader, Pastor Cam, Pastor me. You can talk to any of us. We've got partnerships with refugee care, at-risk mothers, uh, jail ministries, adoption care, so many things. Just look to get started somewhere. And then second, to, to beware the impulse of doing something great and super visible. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. This, is, this is such a, a big, I think, issue for us in our culture because we're, we're a pro-mercy, pro-justice culture. You can get credibility and, and status and popularity just by serving the poor and needy. That's not true in every society and culture and generation. We have to resist the temptation to do something great, do something big and visible to be seen by others. I'm, I'm talking to the entire American church here. I mean, I think the church and their desire to do some of this good work, it's, it's gotten wrapped up in a desire to also be like image-oriented and success-driven. And so we would love to go and serve in the hardest parts of the city and to take care of the poor and needy. And we want to make sure there's a photographer there. And we're going to post on social media all throughout the day. We're going to put a video together to show it on Sunday to inspire the masses. I get that there's a place for all of that. But man, beware the impulse. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Beware doing your righteousness to be seen by others. Even the best things we can do, we can still do with, with wrong motivations if we're not careful. 
Encouragement would be to take the lowest, least visible place of service you can find. Whether it's with your full-time work, with your volunteering, and just simply stay there until you're put into a different position or until you see a, a very particular need that's so significant and that you can meet so uniquely with your own giftedness that you move there. But until that moment, choose the lowest possible place you can find with the least visibility possible and stay there. Third and final thing, you know what it is, it's prayer. Prayer is the secret power of mercy and justice work. This is complex work, it's demanding, it's tiring, it's costly, especially if you see yourself as, as some sort of little savior coming in to help others. It's so easy to rely on your own energy and intellect and education and skills, and that is a, a sure recipe for exhaustion and burnout. But prayer keeps us tethered to the power and presence of God. When we realize we are the poor and needy, that we are both receiving and extending the help of Jesus to one another, the pressure is, is off then. We don't have to create the perfect program or the perfect role or the, the great organization. All we have to do is enter a place of need and prayerfully serve. Prayer both protects us from thinking that we're too low and too needy to do anything worthwhile, and it protects us from thinking that we are too busy and important to get engaged with the needs of other people. It's part of why Isaiah 58 frames all of this in terms of fasting. Our, our hunger, our lack, our total dependence on God our incredible need for the bread of life. Remember, Jesus came to earth to identify with the poor. Think about it. He was born in a feeding trough. He was raised by a poor family. This same Jesus, who according to Tim Keller, rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spent his last evening in a borrowed room. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. His tormentors cast lots for his only possession, his robe, because he had been stripped of everything else. Jesus, though he is eternally rich, he became nothing for us. He took on complete and utter poverty on the cross so that he could give us his very righteousness, his own life. On the cross, he had nothing left. He had no one left. He was poor in every way. And as Keller says, once you see Jesus like this, you will never see the poor the same again. God is inviting us into Christ's likeness. Not as a little savior, but as one who is in touch with our own neediness and desperate dependence on the Lord. He's inviting us to be renewed in our thinking about ourselves and about others and to develop his heart for the poor and needy. This is one of the biggest, boldest promises in all of Scripture. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and the Lord will guide you always. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, that you are 
a God of justice and mercy, a God of faithfulness and unfailing love, abounding in faithfulness to a thousand generations. Lord Jesus, we see you in the Gospels drawing near to those with the greatest needs, going out of your way to find the outcasts and the lepers and the the poor and the needy. And you lifted them up. And in the same way, Lord, we acknowledge that you have lifted us up. Maybe only in 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 a spiritual sense do we have this same level of need. But before the throne, we are every bit as needy as anyone who has ever lived on this earth. And we are just as desperate for your work on the cross to be applied to us for our salvation. Father, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me for so frequently forgetting this? For thinking so much relies on me and on us to extend your kingdom and to do the work. But would you remind us, would you get us in touch with our desperate need of you? And Lord, this church is so full of your spirit, so full of your desire to love the least of these and to care for one another. Would you just unleash this spirit in our midst that we would be a people of of both deep brokenness and a deep heart to serve one another in our community. There is so much need in our own midst and so much need around the world, Lord. Would you pour out your healing spirit on us to serve and love the way that you have, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.